Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. rescue by playing the stick to wrestling podcast i want to thank my friends the rolling stones for writing that song about their favorite podcast stick to wrestling where if you give us 60 minutes we'll give you a raw bone and a wicked good podcast every time by the way not sticking to wrestling if you want to treat yourself go out and buy the rolling stones emotional rescue one of the best albums ever no it's not a disco album there's kind of one disco-y r&b song in it but the rest of the album is a total banger total totally gets my recommendation 41 years later uh before i get rolling i want to invite you to join our facebook page just type in stick to wrestling it'll come right up you are invited we have a new logo i'm all excited about that also if you want to follow me on twitter follow the guy just search for john mcadam and follow the guy who has don morocco and lonnie main fighting with chairs speaking of twitter This week, there was a little bit of a Twitter controversy. We're going to do a quick segment on this. Revisiting the Magnum TA was was supposed to be Ric Flair's challenger at Starcade 86. We're going to talk about that with Jeff Sims. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing good, John. How are you? I'm doing really good. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. Jeff, introduce yourself to the Stick to Wrestling universe. Sure. I well, I live in New York now, but I grew up in in the heart of Crockett territory. I was nice. I was born in Charlotte. Uh, my claim to fame there is that we were either neighbors or you know very close. Uh, live very close to Paul Jones in Charlotte. I have no memory whatsoever of him, but I have a really really vague picture in my head of his son. I played with him. He and I were about the same age, and I. I guess we were chums, you know, the first couple of years of our lives. Then we moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is where I really grew up. I was, um, that's 30 minutes from Greensboro. So smack dab in the middle of Crockett territory. I started watching in the spring of 1986. I would have been 12 then. So that's right, you know, when they were planting the seeds, getting ready for the Great American Bash Tour to, uh, to go on that summer. And I was hooked instantly. It wasn't friends or anything who got me started. I just must have stumbled across this on television on my own. But once I saw it, I was hooked. And, you know, big Dusty Rhodes, big Rock and Roll Express fan. As a kid, as I've gotten older, I'm I'm like you, John. Ric Flair is my favorite of all time. <laughs> That's awesome. And the Rock and Roll Express, I've grown to appreciate them more and more as time has rolled on. Where in New York are you at in now? I'm in Beacon, New York. It's about an hour north of Manhattan. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So, you were a big fan in 1986 uh, when Starcade 86 was rolled out. And like I said, there's been some rumblings on my Twitter that Magnum TA was going to be the challenger. And I, I don't believe that, Jeff. I'm going to tell you why I don't believe it. Starcade, they announced that it was either going to be Dusty Rhodes or Ronnie Garvin versus Ric Flair as the main event. Now, that means it's either going to be three years in a row of Dusty, which just isn't going to happen, or it was scheduled to be Ronnie Garvin. I have always heard that Magnum CA, uh, a year after his classic I Quit Cage match with Tully Blanchard, 
They were going to do that again with Magnum TA against Nikita Koloff. I quit cage match for the United States title. Ron Garvin versus Ric Flair was going to be a Ron Garvin wins the belt or he retires match. Mm-hmm. Magnum regains the championship. Garvin retires, but he becomes a referee, a troubleshooting referee. And they go city to city with Starcade rematches. Then rematches with Magnum and Nikita in the cage. Then in January, we're going to get new United States champion Magnum TA against Ric Flair. The first match in every city was going to be a controversial finish. Ron Garvin was going to be the referee for the second match. And the horseman would decide that Ron Garvin was creating more havoc as a referee than a wrestler. They agree to have him reinstated. And boom, you have two programs for Ric Flair. Ric Flair versus Magnum and Ric Flair versus Ronnie Garvin. That's the big reason why I don't think it was going to happen. It just it made too much sense for Magnum to not be wrestling Ric Flair. Magnum needed a win after losing the best of seven series to Nikita Koloff. You can't do a quickie with Magnum. You can't do long term with Magnum. Some people have said to me, well, Nikita Koloff would be a great challenger for Magnum. I mean, he just won the United States title for him. They did Nikita Koloff versus Magnum TA the whole year of 1986. They started in January. I just don't think they could have gone back to that. Jeff, your thoughts? I agree with you 100%, John. I remember that segment. Like I said, by by the fall of 86, I was you know hook, line, and sinker on Jim Crockett Promotions. I remember them making that announcement that the, the challenger was either going to be Dusty or Ron Garvin. And I, I agree with you as well that I think Dusty absolutely was going to go, you know, for round two of Magnum in the I Quit match. I think he would have beaten Nikita, like you said, in the I Quit match. He would have regained the U.S. title. And I, well, I was going to say one thing. I remember when Magnum had his accident, you know, it was such a big deal do you recall back in the 80s, you know, you'd be watching primetime TV, you're watching Cheers or whatever at home. And after a commercial segment has ended right before it goes back to the show, they would have a little five second teaser with your local news. And they would, you know, your anchor would come on and say, join us at 11 for, you know, whatever ABC that we're going to cover later on. You remember those little teasers they would do? Oh, yeah. I remember one of those after the accident and the anchor coming on for Channel 12 uh, in Winston-Salem. You know, join us at 11 for the latest on Magnum TA. I mean, it was a big deal down there uh, in, in the Crockett part of the country. Sure. So I agree with you 100%. I think it would have been Garvin. I don't think they would have done Dusty three years in a row. That would have made no sense. And the scenario that you lay out for what would have then taken place in, in 87 sounds pretty interesting and I think would have been probably a better way to keep Garvin in the world title picture with Flair than what they eventually went with later on in 87. Uh, Whether that means Garvin, you know, I guess probably more than likely Magnum would have been the one who, who eventually won the title from Flair, whether it was 87 or, you know, perhaps later on. But um, yeah, I agree with you totally. I think, I I don't think Magnum, was ever going to be NWA champion. I know Dusty said after the accident in shoot interviews or whatever that, yes, he would have been. But my sense was that Magnum TA's popularity was starting to wane a little bit. I mean, 
the Rock and Roll Express in 1987, certainly towards the end of the year, were not what they were in 1986. And I think I just think the same thing would have happened to Magnum T.A. I'm, I'm a fan of Magnum T.A., but, you know, I just think the the arrow was going down on him. You know, I, I can see that. I'll, I'll disagree with you a little. I think he would have won it. I don't think he would have been, you know, the the flagship kind of guy that some people have said, you know, all these years later when they go back and think about what Magnum, what could have been with Magnum. I think he would have won, but I'm not sure, uh, you know, may, maybe want, you know, just a, a short reign or something like that. And here's the thing. I, I could be wrong on all of this. I could be wrong about Magnum. You know, maybe he really was going to get the main event at Starcade 86. Someone might say, oh, you know, you, you throw an angle out there with Ric Flair. Well, they, they had just done an angle with Jim Garvin to keep Magnum busy at the house shows while he's building up for Starcade. Now you're going to throw something else out there with Ric Flair. I mean, I, I could be wrong. It's just that all the evidence points to you know, Magnum not getting that title shot. Yeah, that's that was the other thing I meant to mention. I'm glad you'd said it about the Jimmy Garvin thing, because you're right. There was no no real like logical path to get Magnum together with Ric Flair in by the fall of 86 with what had already taken place right up until his accident. It just didn't make sense. And I think in retrospect, seeing how many times Dusty tended to repeat things that worked well, I think it's just a slam dunk that he would have wanted to repeat the I quit match, given how, you know, how great the one the year before had been with Tully Blanchard. I, I just know he would have done it because, you know, Dusty didn't want that feud between Magnum and Nikita to end with the, uh, you know, the supposed Russian, you know, winning. They were going to definitely somehow get Magnum back on top before that was all over. That is an excellent point that Magnum had to come out on top of that feud in the end. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember you talked about this on a show uh, quite some time ago. I liked the idea that you proposed at that time, Dusty keeping the title from the Bash in 86 through Starcade and defending against Bubba Rogers at 80, you know, at Starcade 86. Because you were right, Bubba was red hot then during the Bashes. He was still had that invincible aura about him. And it would have been something different. I, as much as now grown up me is not a Dusty fan at all, I think that would have been cool. Well, thank you. I, I usually people kind of laugh when I throw that theory out there, but you're right. Bubba was red hot summer of 1986, and for whatever reason, Dusty pinned him in a six man tag team match on TV, and that took a lot out of him. Believe it or not, that's the way wrestling used to go. I give Dusty a lot of credit as Booker for figuring out what to do after Magnum's car wreck. I mean, he was under the gun and he came out with just an amazing booking decision to turn Nikita Koloff almost in honor of Magnum TA. Yes, absolutely. I mean, all of what we said, I know there's been a lot of talk, uh, I think even on on our, our Facebook group recently about Nikita Koloff and how he cooled off significantly in 87 and then certainly in 88 when he was so much smaller. But at the time, Dusty had to make like, you know, a game time decision, no chance for a second chance. And the way that it that it was pulled off with Nikita made perfect sense with him respecting Magnum so much. It made perfect sense. And it was a fantastic turn. It just 
may not have been in the long run the absolute best thing for Nikita. You know what? I mean, I I think I know they were going to turn Nikita at some point because he was selling so much merchandise and Dusty turned everyone anyway. I mean, one last thing on Magnum. One of my friends called me the week of the accident and said, you know, hey, it was in USA Today that Magnum TA was in a serious car accident. And I'm like, oh, man, this is the, the same way I got the news that Gino Hernandez had died. I'm like, yeah, OK, is this accurate? And then I remember watching the the Saturday, uh, the 605 show, and it starts and Jim Garvin comes out and does an interview and they put a little thing on the corner of the screen. I think it said recorded October 12th, 1986. And I was like, oh, that that's bad news. Yeah, for sure. You know, they're they're letting you know that something has happened between then and now. All right. That was a segment that we did, and Jeff, you did a really good job. Ninety minutes before we were starting, we were supposed to start recording. Jeff is on his first podcast, and I, I am, and I'm like, hey, let's do this Magnum TA thing. So you did really well on your feet, sir. Thank you, I appreciate it. It's fun to talk about. <laughs> All right, now we're going to get to the meat of the show. Let me tell you how we got here. A friend of mine, Sonny Martinez. Uh, we were kind of watching, group watching the latest uh, WWF live event. And, you know, we were talking about second generation wrestlers. And I forget exactly what he said, but he's like, you know, these things, second generation wrestlers are hit and miss. Sometimes you get Bret Hart. Sometimes you get Keith Hart. It really made me think. I'm like, is that really true? And, yeah, sometimes you get a Kelly Kaniski. Sometimes you get a, a George Goulas. But if you are a second generation wrestler, your chances of being successful are far greater than your, your average wrestler. And that's what we're here to talk about. Jeff and I are going to rank the top 10 second or third or maybe even fourth. I don't know. Generation wrestlers of all time. Jeff, who did you have at number 10? I'm going to give you my number 10 and I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to just tell you who my number 11 was, who I just barely didn't make the cut, though we don't have to go into him to any great extent. I had Carrie Von Erich at number 11 and number 10, I had Eddie Guerrero. Eddie Guerrero is my number 12. Is he? Okay. Yes. So I, I, I think very highly of Eddie Guerrero. He had a kind of a short career, but he was a phenomenal wrestler won every title you could win in WWF, was really smart to get out of WCW when he did. I've got my notes, I say, smooth as silk. I mean, he really was in the ring. Fantastic in the ring. His personality showed at times in WCW, and then it just blossomed so much more when he came over to WWE. I thought he had was a really cool moment when he beat Brock Lesnar for the world title in WWE. I think that that was his only world title, if, if I remember correctly. And I, I just think it's a shame Eddie was much bigger in WWE than he was in WCW and certainly than he was even before WCW. I think it's it's a shame that he presumably felt like he needed to do that to to probably make it at that level with WWE. But Everything else, great wrestler, smooth as could be. So he's my number 10. I, I think that that's a good pick. And it was really hard for me to leave Eddie Guerrero out of the top 10, which goes to show you, I mean, I've got some incredible names on my list and it, it's hard. Like, for example, Rey Mysterio Jr. ranked number 10 on my list. I mean, here's a guy, this is, he is in his fifth 
decade as a professional wrestler. Okay, it's 2021 and he started in 1989, but it's still kind of a cool stat. He was phenomenal in AAA. I mean, back in the early 90s, it was like, you know, the word among tape traders was get footage of this guy. You're not going to believe what you see. And I mean, he was the best high flyer I had ever seen at the time. And I mean, he topped Jushin Thunder Liger. And I never thought he would make it as big as he did. He's listed as five foot six. I don't, that's really short for a guy. And I don't even think he's five six. I think he's more like five four, to be honest with you. But I would he agree had, with you. Yeah, he had great success in the WWF, won both titles, has had one great run after another. I loved him in WCW. Like I said, never thought he'd get past that cruiserweight label, but he did. And he's gone on to have a Hall of Fame career. Absolutely. I didn't have him on my list. I only went through number 11. And and you're right. There were so many names that had to be left off because we had such a huge, huge list with many good guys to uh, to start with. So I didn't have Ray on my list, but everything you said, I agree with. He's a fantastic worker. And the stuff in in ECW, then WCW in in the 90s was great. And then he adjusted it, as you said, and really went to the next level in WWE. And is still there. And he's still there teaming with his son. And his son looks like he's got a bright future. You know, I mean, good for Mysterio. I mean, he he looked like he was never going to make it. And he did. Jeff, who do you have as your number nine? All right, my number nine, this is where the list might get a little weird because it's it's so subjective. I've got Charlotte Flair number nine. I've got Charlotte Flair number 11, and it was painful for me to not have her in the top 10. She's fantastic. She is fantastic. You know, I did some homework before this, so I watched some matches the, the last couple of days to catch, you know, to just see some guys I hadn't seen quite as much and, and Charlotte Flair, I've seen a lot of her stuff, but I went back and I just wanted to see her most recent match from, I think it was the money in the bank that they did a couple of weeks ago in WWE. She is fantastic. I mean, she is so athletic. She carries herself so much like a champion. Obviously we know where she got that from, but she, (laughs) she is so much more now than Ric Flair's daughter. I think the figure eight is an awesome finisher. You know, in this day and age when people have to like go through a hundred tables and, you know, all these crazy things to finally get a pinfall in a match, you know, the bar has been raised so high. She's got a finisher that is a really cool enhancement to a classic finisher. It looks fantastic. It's totally believable. I love it. And I've got a connection to her. She went. Her first two years, she went to Appalachian State University, which is where I went to school. I think she went there for volleyball. And so between that and Appalachian State is in uh, the mountains of North Carolina, by the way. So between that and the fact that Ric Flair is my favorite, I wanted to have a a woman on the top somewhere in my top 10. And so I put her there at number nine. You know what? That actually makes sense. Yeah, you put someone like Charlotte in the top 10. Now I'm starting to kind of regret not doing that. One thing we had talked about before the show is it is so hard to compare someone like Charlotte Flair to someone like, let's say, a Greg Valentine. It is a really difficult contrast. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. The the way the business has changed in the last 15 years, it, it feels like 
it feels like more time should have passed because the change has been so significant, I think. I, I agree with you. It is a totally different product. And I still think for the most part, it's an enjoyable product. Uh, I watch the live events every time they're on. Now, I don't watch Raw and SmackDown every week. I just don't have that much time. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh, my God, Charlotte Flair stinks. Charlotte Flair is great. And I believe it was 2016. If someone had told me an American women's match would be the best match of the year in like 1985, I would have been like, yeah, right. Sasha Banks and Charlotte had like this five star plus match on Raw. I think it was at the end of 2016. And I was like, this is easily match of the year. I'm not sure that I saw that one. So I'll go back and find it. Okay, yeah, it's um I think it was December 2016, I could be wrong. Okay. My number 9. A lot of people talk about like let me give you an example. Jake Roberts should have had a run with the WWF Championship. Mm-hmm. And as much as I like Jake Roberts, okay? There was no time when he was a better choice as WWF Champion than Hulk Hogan certainly, than Randy Savage, than Ultimate Warrior. Etc. There was just no time he could have had the belt. Ted DiBiase, my number nine, absolutely could have been NWA champion. Yes, ahead of Ric Flair. I mean, as much Ric Flair's my favorite wrestler of all time. I think he's the greatest wrestler of all time. But Ted DiBiase was more versatile. He was easier to use as either a baby face or a heel, depending on how whatever territory wanted to use him. He was supposed to be the WWF champion in 1988, and something happened where they had to placate Randy Savage, and they wound up giving him the title instead. And frankly, I think it would have been a better summer series, 1988, if Randy Savage were the one chasing WWF champion Ted DiBiase instead of the other way around. That's a really interesting point, and and now that I think about it, I agree with you. That would have been a really cool series. I will not tell you where I've got Ted on my list because it'll be a spoiler. We'll get to him later on, but I will tell you, he's on my list. And he's one of those guys, I'm going to save most of my comments, but I'll I'll say right now, as I said, when I I started watching wrestling, I was watching the Crockett stuff, and I very quickly just put on Crockett blinders, and that was all I cared about. And I've kind of still got him on. You know, I obviously have expanded my horizon some since then, but Ted DiBiase is one of those guys that if he had been in the Crockett territory where I think he would have been a fantastic fit, I would know him better now than I do. So I went back and watched some of his matches uh, this past week. And when I get to him on my list, I'll tell you what I thought of him. All right. That sounds really good. Who is your number eight? My number eight is Tully Blanchard. Okay, I've got Tully at number 16. Which, yeah, it's such a tough list. There are so many great wrestlers. There are so many. And I didn't think that it was much of it. I didn't think that, you know, we would have an identical list. I was pretty sure that I would be pretty different from you. So no surprise. Tully's awesome. I went back. the, The match that I watched with Tully, obviously, I'm very familiar with him. But I remember, you know, WWE put up sometime back when the network was still the network before it moved over to Peacock. They put up in their Hidden Gems section the full 1986 Crockett Cup. You remember that? Oh, yeah. And so when I watched that, I remember, th- I, I think it was like a second round match between Tully and Arn, who were 
non-regular tag team partners at the time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Ole was out with the injury in early 86 or the supposed injury. So Tully and Arn teamed together for the tournament. They had a match with the Fantastics that they lost. And it was a really good 11 or 12 minute match. And I said, so I had made a mental note of how good it was. And so I went back and watched that match the other day and it was fantastic. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, the horsemen at this point are in their infancy. Arn Anderson is, you know, he's been in the business a few years, but he's Tully's certainly the veteran on the team. And Tully was just so good there. And the note that I made that I think everyone will agree with shit starter. That's what he is. Tully is so good at doing, you know, he's aggressive, believable, angry, just always starting something. He's not a big guy, but he made himself believable with his psychology and his, uh, you know, facials and his promos and everything. I liked him a lot. I thought he might have been a better foil for Dusty than Ric Flair, honestly. You may be right. I want to recommend to everyone. I'm not sure if it's on Peacock yet, but they're saying that by the end of the month, everything will be up. They have a a great American bash from 86 where it was a taped fist match with Tully Blanchard and Ronnie Garvin. This was easily a four star match. It is not just Tully at its absolute best, but it's J.J. Dillon showing why he was such a phenomenal and underrated manager. Seek that out once they put it up. Tully Blanchard, I think there are still some grudges I hold against pro wrestling from like the 80s and 90s. And Tully Blanchard's career coming to an abrupt end at the end of 1989. I mean, he if, if his career was longer, he would have been higher on my list. And I feel like at least five years of prime Tully Blanchard was stolen from us. I agree with you. My last bullet point under Tully Blanchard is what if. I totally agree. You know, there's so much more they could have done. I've wondered many times what would have happened had Tully actually shown up in early 1990 when they were going to bring him in as the fourth horseman. And then again in 1993 was when he was supposed to show up as the fourth horseman. What would have happened? He probably couldn't have wouldn't have stayed long in either case because he I, I couldn't see him putting up with Jim Hurd. Yeah, I think they would have rubbed each other the wrong way. And then, you know, 93 and 94 WCW was a very different animal from what he was used to also. Uh, totally. But then, I mean, then again, there's there's obviously always the issue of the paycheck. Like, you know, you're going to make more in WCW than you are anywhere else. My number eight. And again, all these guys, it feels like they could be higher. My number eight is Bret Hart which feels low for a guy who did so much in the WWF, not just as a tag team wrestler, but obviously in his prime in the mid to late nineties, the guy who was kind of the backbone of the company goes to show like what a phenomenal list this is. Yeah. Brett's on my list too. I'm going to save my comments on him. So he'll come up in a minute. I will tell you though, this is a good reminder in cases where there were siblings that were on the list, you know, in this case, Brett and Owen both, I made myself a rule that I would only choose one. So I, I wasn't going to duplicate and have, you know, all three of the Von Erics or something on my list or something like that. I was only going to choose one per family. 
Okay, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, Brett's another guy that you kind of say, what if? Like, what if he hadn't suffered that injury, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with that crazy booking, you know, playing with real glass? I mean, Brett, yeah, he was older. I think he was 43 when that happened, but he was far from finished. Right. Yeah, he was. He he certainly had plenty of gas left in the tank. And it's a shame because I think Brett's a guy who, in retirement, I think people's opinions of, of Brett have changed mine included i'll admit because he has you know been so critical of so many things about the business and different people within the business uh you know at the time when he was still active he was just everybody like you know liked him he was a really good wrestler brett's a a guy i have always felt a little bit sorry for because in some ways, he was happy and comfortable with the WWF, yet in some ways, he kind of complained to the point where Vince wanted to get rid of him. I mean, you could tell by watching the documentary, Wrestling with Shadows, you know, he did, he really didn't want to go to WCW. He was happy in the WWF, and Vince decided, you know, okay, I can't have Brett and Sean in the same locker room. One of them's got to go, and it was Brett. It was, and I don't know that I would have made a different decision if I were Vince either. I, I, I'll be honest. I wouldn't Sean either. Vince. I don't know if I would have. Yeah. You know, Shawn Michaels was an incredible talent. Uh, uh, certainly an incredible pain in the ass too, but Brett was the same way. Yeah, totally. All right. Who did you have as number seven? Number seven, I had Barry Windham. And Barry he- Windham was my number 17. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Barry, the reason I put him, you know, he had a, his prime years were relatively short. I mean, really from like 84-ish or so to 89, 83-ish, 84 to 89. But during his prime, especially 85, 86, 87, 88, I mean, he was elite, you know, in the top 1% of workers in the world. And for that reason, I ranked him this high. But he really, really checked out. After about the time when he went to the WWF, I think in the early part of 1989, you know, I think he checked out mentally, which led him to check out physically because he gained you and know, put on a ton of weight. And he just I've heard you say it on the show before. He just was not the same performer. It wasn't it was like he just didn't have the same gleam in his eye after that point. But that series with Ric Flair in 87 was so good. I've always heard after they did 60-minute draws, that they then went around and did a series or, or at least a small series of 90-minute matches. I would love to see one of those, This, but I believe those are all lost to time and that there's no uh, handheld footage or anything like that. Probably not. I mean, back then, it was really difficult to sneak a camera into an arena because they were so darn big. I mean, That's Barry true, Windham yeah. in 88, when they turned him in 88, and what a phenomenal turn with, you know, the, the mask in one hand and the four fingers up on the other hand. Mm-hmm. I wondered, you know, is this going to work? Barry Windham, I had never been a heel before. You just don't know. And he was a phenomenal heel. And by summer of 1988, I'm like, this is going to be the NWA's go to guy. Ric Flair's getting older. He was already in his late 30s. Barry was probably, I think, 10 years younger than him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is going to be your go-to guy. He's going to be the the head of the horseman. Ric Flair is going to be the guy. He's going to be the guy who turns Ric Flair babyface. And it, it, like like you mentioned, it's just, you know, the fire seemed to go out when he was let go of the NWA early 1989. 
if you think about that that horseman group in 88 versus the horseman in 1990 when Barry came back I mean Barry went from being like a, a 1A focal point right behind Ric Flair to just being a guy standing behind him during interviews. I mean, there's such a dramatic difference. There really was. I, I was very excited when I heard right around uh, May, it was May 1990, I heard that Barry was going to be brought back. It was a done deal. I was very, very excited. He wasn't the same guy, like you said. Yeah, it's a shame. All right. You had Barry as number seven. My number seven easily could be higher because he was the face of the AWA for so long. He was the number one guy in the promotion. He was an extraordinary worker, a great interview. Of course, I'm talking about Nick Bockwinkle. And a lot of people don't kind of like Nick Bockwinkle's second generation. Yeah, Warren Bockwinkle was a big deal in the 40s and 50s. I'm one of those people. <laughs> this is the one guy that stood out on the list to me, and I'm thinking, Nick Bockwinkle, who's his dad or mom? Uh, and I had to look it up myself. I mean, yeah, they really didn't push that as part of his identity that Warren, he was Warren Bockwinkle's son. And Nick had been around the wrestling business for a long time. He was the AWA tag team champion, a legendary team with Ray Stevens. And then he became the long term, and I do mean long term, replacement for Vern Gagne. Just, you know, an incredible wrestler. Some people consider him the greatest of all time. I think that's a little bit overrating him, but he was phenomenal. I wish he had, in a way, I wish he had lost the AWA championship maybe in the late seventies and had done a run up here against Bob Backlund. That would have been phenomenal. Yeah. Nick was one of the guys that I went back and watched this week and he really was good. I mean, he, he was never in my sweet spot as far as a kid watching wrestling because I, I saw the AWA on uh, on ESPN in the afternoons, um, so I was aware of him and I saw some of his matches. But he he just wasn't in my sweet spot, like I said. And then you know I'll get to him. He's also on my list later on, so I'll have some more comments. But the reason that he's not even higher on my list is because he didn't have the national exposure that some of the other guys on this list did have. Yeah, and again, that's that's why it's 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 hard to make a comparison because back then the AWA was a regional business, and it's hard comparing that to a wrestler who's an internationally known now. Right. All right. Who did you have as your number six? Okay, I said that when I had Charlotte as number nine, that that's where the list was going sideways. This is where it's really going to go sideways. I've got the rock at number six and I had a really hard time thinking about how to handle Dwayne Johnson within this list because he is such, you know, such a different creature than anybody else that we're going to talk about today. A hundred percent, a totally different animal. And it's just, it's almost impossible to ignore how successful and what he has become post wrestling. And that when you think about actually ranking him within a group of guys who are just wrestlers. I mean, I've said this on the show before. I remember, I think it was 1999 seeing the rock on Saturday night live. And I was like, there's no way he's staying in the wrestling business for much longer. His talent transcends wrestling. Mm -hmm. And 
I'll tell you why. I will get to him later because he's a little bit higher up on my list. But you can make the argument for him being a little bit lower for no other reason than he had a short career. He did. And also, if you really want to split hairs, I mean, his work is a little sloppy at times. He's got that sharpshooter that he kind of halfway gets it on when he, when he turns it over. True. He's a little a little too theatrical for my old school taste. So you could certainly poke some holes in his game, so to speak. But I also wrote down he loves the business. That's obvious still in 2021. He was unselfish as a wrestler, obviously an elite talker. I mean, that's an understatement. And just, you know, he is what he is. He's the rock. He's different than any, you know, one thing is not like the others on this list. I can see where you're coming from, because I know in the late 90s, obviously, I knew a lot of wrestling fans. A couple of them were just so turned off by The Rock, by the, you know, the catchphrases and the people's elbow and all that. And to me, at the end of the day, it worked. It got over. It did. It it certainly did. All right. My number six, and I moved this guy so many times. If, if we did the show two hours later, he might be higher or lower. And a lot of people who haven't been watching the current product might go, oh, my God, no, that's too high. Randy Orton, absolutely. I have him at number six. I think I could have had him even higher. He has had a 20-year run, almost 20 years, like 18 years, at the top of the WWF. He is a fantastic talker, a great all-around talent, a great wrestler. And once again, you've got to consider the longevity. He's 41 years old, and he's still going at it. He's someone who could rank higher as time goes on and as he accomplishes more. I agree with you. He's a tough one, just like you know Roman Reigns or anybody else who's on the list who's a current uh, WWE or, I guess, a, you know, AEW uh, wrestler. The difficulty, I think, in ranking or in comparing someone who's active today versus somebody who was active in the 80s or 90s is wrestling is so different because now it's kind of like wrestler A does something to wrestler B. I'll do something to you, and then you turn around and do something to me, and then I'll turn around and do something to you. It's very back and forth. There's not the long, drawn-out you know, heel-heat segments like there used to be. The It's just apples and oranges, even comparing like a match quality. So I had a really hard time in my head thinking to myself, how good of a wrestler is Randy Orton or Roman Reigns versus somebody else, a Ted DiBiase or uh, Eddie Guerrero, you know, somebody who was active later on, or earlier. I mean, I, I can totally see that. I mean, that's a guy like Nick Bockwinkle. He didn't have the opportunity to be on Fox every Friday night on USA Network every Monday night. It's hard almost to hold that against him, but at the same time, it has to be taken into consideration that if you're a household name from coast to coast, like some of these guys are. Yeah, yeah, it's really tough. We, like you said, we could do this list again tomorrow and it would be different. Mine changed as the hours led up to the show. Jeff, who did you have at number five? I had Nick Bockwinkle at number five. Okay, I, and I can totally see that. I can totally see him ranked higher. And that was kind of like, I, I felt like he deserved it, even if I wasn't as familiar with him, not necessarily a huge fan personally. I'm not, I'm not, 
you know, anti-Nick Bockwinkle. I'm just kind of neutral. I, I just wasn't, you know, didn't grow up in the AWA territory, so I just wasn't exposed to him as much and never really sought him out back in the tape trading days either. But I know, you know, he's a legend. He was, as you said, multi-time, long-term AWA champion. I just felt like he deserved to be pretty high on the list. I'm trying to think of when the first time I saw Nick Bockwinkle was. It was probably on Pro Wrestling USA, like late 84, early 85, which is kind of crazy because I started getting the magazines in 1976 and Nick Bockwinkle was part of my life through the magazines, yet I never saw him wrestle. I saw him, I remember seeing him doing an interview on Southwest Championship Wrestling in 81 on cable, but he, he didn't have a match. So it's just weird, like this pro wrestler is part of your life, but I've never actually seen him wrestle in, for like almost 10 years. And I did watch a Flair Bockwinkle match. I think it was from 85, I want to say, this week I watched. And I could see how somebody could easily say Nick Bockwinkle's better than Ric Flair. I could totally see it in terms of like his his finesse and his technical expertise, if you will. But at the same time, Flair's got more pizzazz than Bockwinkle did. You know, he's an all-time great. I have no problem uh, ranking him high. Uh, and I could I could have easily I'm sure at one point I had him as as high as number five. You got to consider too that Winnipeg match against Flair. I think Bockwinkle was already 50 years old at this point. I know that like five star match he had that was broadcast on New Year's Eve in 1986 against Kurt Henning. I know he was past 50 then. So I mean that shows you what a great talent he was. I I wish there was more Bockwinkle footage out there from you know his run in the AWA, mid-70s, late-70s, early-80s. The Hennig one is a good one. I, did, I That one slipped my mind. I should go back and watch that again. Okay, so you had Bockwinkle at five. At number five, I had, and again, this guy could be higher, Randy the Macho Man Savage. I actually raised him up a few spots because of the, I don't know, the the kind of undefinable thing where everyone knew who Randy Savage was in the 80s. He had a great career in the WWF, obviously, a run with the WWF Championship, two main events at WrestleMania, and after that, he he's kind of going into the decline phase of his career, and he gets picked up by WCW and is a star there. Totally right. I, I've got him on my list, so I'll get to him in a minute. But you're totally right. He's almost got three careers in a sense that the, the territory stuff that he did with his father's promotion earlier, the WWF career, which was fantastic and then totally rejuvenated in WCW. He had a ton left in the tank when he got to WCW. I agree. And it's funny. One of my guys I have coming up, I have in my notes two slash three careers. He's known for having two careers, but I'm going to make an argument that he had three, but we'll get to that. Jeff, who did you have at number four? I had the hitman, Bret Hart, number four. Okay. And Uh, I could totally see that. Yep. I had to put, as I said, when Bret came up earlier, I'm not a big fan. I had to put my, my personal preference aside the the war of words between Bret Hart and Ric Flair over the years uh, yeah. later on in both of their careers soured me on him on Bret a little bit. But 
you can't uh, dispute how good the guy was in the ring. He was so you. I think of him as exclusively a WWE guy, even though he did come over to WCW for the last what year and a half, maybe two two years of his career before Goldberg ended it. But I mean, so again, like Bockwinkle, he wasn't in my sweet spot as far as watching because I was not a big WWE or F fan. I mean, I watched it, but you know, the NWA I felt was was far superior. And for for all of his criticism that uh, of of Flair as being repetitive, I find Brett a little repetitive in the ring at times too. Yeah, so I'm I'm talking down on him, but I you you can't dispute how good he was. And you know, multiple world titles, even though it's a worked business, that that kind of gives him a check. You know, on in my ranking that I felt like I I had to have him pretty high for that reason. You know, it's funny. I, I saw two of the best matches I've ever seen live in, in involved Brett. One was at the Boston Garden in early 1986. They had this match out of nowhere with Ricky Steamboat, and the match was phenomenal. And I, I remember, like, not really knowing what work rate was, but knowing that I was seeing this great match. And again, this is before Brett even put on, like, the he was part of the Heart Foundation, but they hadn't even put them in the pink and black tights yet. So. Mm-hmm. They were kind of not knowing what they were going to do with him. But Brett, and it's funny, we bring up Brett and Flair. That was another one of the greatest matches I've ever seen live. They had this Iron Man match at the Boston Garden in early 1993, which was just incredible. And then you learn that these two absolutely hate each other. Like that's, I kind of found out after the fact, like before they started going out, going out with it in public, like there was just talk that Flair and Brett hated each other, and yet they're out there having this, this five-star match. You're right. I had forgotten about that match, but that is that was a really, really good one, the the 93 with Flair. I've got the handheld of that also. Oh. Um, that was a fantastic match. Were they on bad terms even in, in Flair's first run in the WWE, WWF? That is what I heard right around the time, uh, right around the, the time of the match. Like, I, I was talking about this fantastic match and someone who uh, was familiar with the business. And he's like, yeah. And the two of them can't stand each other. Interesting. Well, they did have a great match that night. I mean, they made an iron. It's, it's, it's tough to stay invested for 60 minutes. Yes. Even for the, the most diehard wrestling fan. And it's tough to keep, you know, to keep it exciting for 60 minutes. And they did, they had a great match that night. Yeah, they, they definitely did. I have not read Brett's book in forever i definitely recommend it i I, when i say forever i i don't think i've read it since like 2008 and it's probably time for me to do so again have you read it i have not no i never picked it up for the same reason because i just uh, i i just kind of in my mind wasn't interested uh due to all the animosity i i was so firmly in flair's camp that i just wasn't interested it's a really good book but it reminds me of I, I read Johnny Ramone's autobiography, and mm-hmm. it's like the guy couldn't get through a page without taking a shot at Joey. Like Brett just took shot after shot at Rick. It took away from the book, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But it was still a good book. Okay, my number four, I have the feeling is not on your list because of your brother rule. This I think is going to be a controversial pick. But I mean, really, Dory Funk Jr was the top man in pro wrestling for four years as NWA champion. I have had an old friend, Harry White, 
he used to go to the matches in St. Louis. He told me Dory Funk Jr. was the best NWA champion he's ever seen. And I look at him. I'm like, better than Flair? Yes. Better than Briscoe? Yes. That's, you know, I wish there was more prime Dory out there. I have a one-hour draw between he and Jack Briscoe, which is just phenomenal. It's a different kind of style. It's a 70s style, but I thought it was an all-time great match. And I haven't even started talking about Dory in Japan, where he was an absolute legend. So to me, if you're NWA champion for four years, like you get a lot of credit for that. And Dory did a lot more than that. You're right. He's not on my list, but I can, like you said, with some of my guys, I can totally see how he would be on a list and how he would be high up there, too. How different is prime Dory versus later Dory? I've seen later stuff. I haven't really watched his prime material. Dory was always a little bit slow and methodical, but everything he did made sense. He knew the business. I can see someone saying, I thought Dory was boring. Every time his name comes up on a message board, pretty much someone's going to say, ah, he was boring, but I didn't think so. And I mean, the NWA obviously didn't think so. He, you know, once again, had the belt for four years. From what I understand, he wanted to keep it. He was not happy about losing it, but Four years is a long time. I agree with you. A big, long reign like that goes a long way toward a high ranking. Yeah, there's there's nothing to compare the NWA championship to nowadays. I mean, you were the champion. I mean, back then, 69 to 73, you know, how many territory, how many vital territories were there? There were like 12 or 13, and Dory was the king of all of them. Sure, Absolutely. All right. Who is your number three, Jeff? My number three is Ted DiBiase. Wow. Yeah, I had him high. He was one of the guys that jumped out at me almost immediately when I went through the big list that we started with. And I thought, I've got to have him really high. He doesn't check any of my personal boxes as far as being like in, in the territories that I was watching. He later in his career was in the WWE, which was not my favorite, or WWF, not my favorite. But he was just really good. You know, he wasn't a world champion, another thing. But he was really, really good, and he was really believable. He was smooth, believable talking, believable in the ring. Tiny little things. Like, I watched a couple of his matches the other night, too. This is, I'm going to really get in the weeds for a second here, but... You know, he did the the power slam off the ropes uh, was one of his moves. He kind of tweaks his body as he goes over making the rotation. So it looks like an actual power slam that that he is doing to someone versus the other guy is just jumping in his arms and flipping. You know, I don't know if, if it's hard to um, describe it verbally versus seeing it on a video. But it just it looked like a little nuance that was like in his DNA as a a second generation or, or is he third generation? I believe uh, he's second generation. Okay. Uh, his dad, Mike DiBiase, was a wrestler and his, his mom. stepmom was was also a wrestler. Her, okay. Helen Hild. Yeah, but I think that that believability and fluidity is just something that's in the DNA when you're born into a wrestling family. And I think that's why we have so many phenomenal wrestlers on this list. You're right. If you're if you're born into it, you start young, 
you know, you're not some guy who's doing his first training session when he's 22. I mean, that that's a huge advantage. Ted DiBiase, it's funny, we, we were talking about guys who have two careers. We have Mid-South Ted DiBiase, and, you know, before that, WWF, obviously, some Georgia. That mm-hmm. Ted DiBiase is the best heel I've ever seen. Like, that guy was diabolical. He always had some kind of a, an insidious plot, and it was like he would kill you. Just like, you know, me swatting a mosquito off my leg. Like, he did not care. He was stone-cold vicious. And then, second career as the million-dollar man, which was, you know, I mean, arguably the best gimmick of all time. I almost sent you a message the other night asking, because I've heard you say that on the show before. I was going to ask you to tell me a match to watch where I can see this diabolical uh, Ted DiBiase at at his best. If you go to Mid-South Wrestling in when he returns in 1984, um, I'm trying to think this would be right around September or October, I think, of 1984. And he returns and he immediately restarts his feud with Hacksaw Jim Duggan by attacking him in a parking lot. Uh, so that's what I would recommend. Okay. And you got like a year of Teddy Biasi just being a, a total just a criminal. The guy was so great. Sounds good. I will look at, I've got several things to do uh, additional homework with when we get finished then. And it it is on Peacock. The Mid-South Wrestling has finally been uploaded and I have been watching the early 1984 stuff. Okay. But it's baseball season. So you know how that goes. All right. My number three. Now I talked a little bit about how Sonny Martinez kind of gave me the idea of, you know, wow, is this really true? Is there a Keith Hart for every Bret Hart? The other thing that got me thinking about this, I was watching the WWE special event a couple of weeks ago. Roman Reigns, my number three. I was like, oh. where would he rank in a list like this? This is kind of the genesis of this episode. And Roman Reigns, believe it or not, has headlined five WrestleManias already, and he's only 36 years old. He's been a phenomenal talent from day one. The team of he and Paul Heyman, if you don't watch the current product, just find the segments with Paul Heyman and Roman Reigns. They are incredible. He is believable as the top heel in the wrestling industry. For whatever reason, the fans decided that they didn't like Roman as a babyface. They felt like he was being crammed down their throats. Yeah, that's kind of how wrestling promotion goes. He's an incredible wrestler, a great promo. And like I said, he's only 36. In five years, he might be my number one. I don't watch the current product a whole lot. I will tune in to the big shows. I'll watch SummerSlam and, and WrestleMania. And every once in a while, I'll I'll just uh, watch something else for fun. But I'm, I, I know that he is really good as a heel since he's been with Paul Heyman. I've seen some of his stuff and the like the whole almost like mob family rule, you know, the the head of the mob family persona that he's got now is really cool. And the fact that he was able to to make that U-turn after coming back from leukemia mm-hmm. and being such a sympathetic baby face. And then he was able to turn into this vicious heel. I think it's cool that he's able to to make that switch. That impresses me. He is so big, and he is such a great wrestler, great athlete, played defensive end for Georgia Tech. The ceiling on this guy may not have even been reached, and 
like I said, I've got him at number three in five years. He could be number one. <sighs> Jeff, we're getting close to the top. Who is your number two? Okay, my number two is Macho Man Randy Savage. All right. I wrote down, and you you mentioned this when you did uh, Savage in your, on your list. I wrote down, it's not necessarily that he's got more charisma than the other guys on this list. It's more that he's, like, larger than life, to use a Vince McMahonism. Uh, he just has that whatever, I don't, you know, that intangible something that just makes him, he's a star, you know it. That was one of the things that I liked about him. Also, Randy Savage always sold. That was something that I really appreciated. He wasn't a babyface like Hogan became later on. I mean, Hogan sold earlier in the you know in the mid '80s, but then certainly by the time he got to WCW, Hogan wouldn't sell anything. Savage always did when he was in the WWF as a babyface. Once he made the turn, and when he came to WCW, I always appreciated that. In the 90s, when no one sold for Ric Flair in WCW, Randy Savage did. And I just thought that that was the mark of a pro, someone who knew the business and knew how to do it right. That impressed me, as well as the fact that he was, I don't know how many times, world champion between the two companies. But he's got all the, all the oh my God, I'm going to say the word wrong because of the Lex Luger thing, the accolades. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I've got a, a mental block in my head now because of that. I'm going to go around saying allocates. But at any rate, he's got it all. Randy Savage. So he's my number two. For one, Lex Luger used to go around saying allocates as opposed to accolades. He wouldn't stop. I mean, he, I, I, someone had to have corrected him at some point. Number two, I remember the first time I ever saw Randy Savage. This was back in the very early, for me at least, VCR days, where we would rent a VCR, a not a VCR uh, recorder, a player, and we would get you know whatever wrestling tapes they had laying around, and they had this crazy tape um, with Johnny Legend. It was called Rock and Roll Wrestling. It's actually it, it's kind of goofy, but in a lot of ways it was fun. And that was the first time I saw Randy Savage. I was like, oh, my God, I've never seen this guy before. I'd only seen him in magazines. And I'm like, why is he not in a major wrestling company? And and just a few weeks after that, he finally landed in the WWF. And I mean, it was apparent right from the start that this guy was going to be a sensation. And he was. Yeah, he had it all. I mean, a crazy man who could work. I mean, you know, he could fly. He could talk. He could do everything. Uh, yeah, and they don't just reserve, you know, he got the angle where all of the managers were trying to recruit his services, and, you know, that that put him over as something special. They had never done that with anyone before, as far as I know. Yeah, prior to that, I don't remember it either. I have the feeling my number two is your number one. <laughs> my number two is Terry Funk. You know, he was NWA champion for a little over a year, I think. Remember, we were talking about guys having two or three careers. He had his NWA career where he was a big star in Florida, big star in Georgia, obviously in Amarillo, St. Louis. Then he kind of, to me, disappeared for a little bit. And I was really surprised when in, I want to say, fall of 1985, he shows up in the WWF and gets a big push. And I was like, wow, you know, they... They blew the dust off this guy. No, he was a legend in Japan, and that's where he made his money in the early 80s. And then he 
you know, blew out his knee, quote unquote, at WrestleMania two. He went home and he seemed to be out of the business. I know he made a couple of appearances in Florida, a couple of appearances in Japan, but that was it. I thought he was retired. And boom, he shows up in WCW and does that crazy angle with Ric Flair. He's there for a little, not even a year. He winds up in ECW, and he was a pillar of that company. So, I mean, what a fascinating career Terry Funk had. Absolutely. Yeah, and I spoiler, he is going to be my number one. Um, totally fascinating. When was his first retirement? Was it a, he retired in Japan in like 83 or something? Is that right? I believe it was 82. I could be wrong about that. Okay. So how many, you know, multiple careers for him and they were different. So the longevity is not even a question. He was also really generous as a worker. I mean, in the way that he worked, he was, he, you know, he was unselfish. He didn't have to have the spotlight on him all the time. And I think that's evident in ECW more so than than anywhere, perhaps. I mean, like you said, it he was like the godfather of ECW. Who knows what would have happened had he not taken that company under his wing? And also, I mean, that feud with Ric Flair was nothing short of phenomenal. I mean, Terry was the perfect guy to bring in and get Flair over as a babyface. It was so different because in the NWA in 1989 and well before that. I mean, it was cool to cheer the heels. A lot of fans did. No one was cheering for Terry Funk. Right. Yeah, that was a fantastic feud. I've got a note here that I'm going to talk about when it gets back to me related to that year in the NWA. Well, I mean, he's your number two, so we're talking about the same guy. You go for it, it, man. He's my number one. Yeah, he's just like I said a minute ago that Randy Savage sold for Ric Flair in that the same thing with Terry Funk in that I quit match in the the what is that the fall of 89 between Flair and Funk. One of the best matches I've ever seen. After every person north of George South has reversed the figure four over the years. I mean, that finisher had been so diluted by Dusty's booking kind of over the years. Terry Funk gives up to the figure four and the way he sold it, he's screaming into the microphone, my leg, my leg, it's breaking. It was just so good. You know, he got Flair over, not that Flair wasn't over already, but I mean, he really put him over, put the move over. It was just, like I said, with Savage, just a really, he was a pro. It was so obvious. The ECW thing was really cool. What I thought was especially awesome was at the very end of the first ECW pay-per-view, you know, as you know, right before the whole place like almost blows up and the and the feed goes out for the pay-per-view, Funk wins the ECW world title. And it's in the midst of all this hardcore and blood and all the barbed wire and everything. And what does he win it with? A small package. It was just a really cool moment. His longevity, his generosity, his professionalism, absolute all-time legend, to use a, a Jim Rossism, first ballot Hall of Famer, you know, no doubt whatsoever. He's my number one. I mean, on the right day, we, you, know, we talk, you and I talked about Ric Flair is our, both our favorite wrestler of all time. On the right day, Terry Funk is my number two. I mean, I think that highly of him. And going back to 1989, you know, he went to around the horn with Sting versus Sting before the Great American Bash when Flair made his return. And the logical booking is 
Terry Funk goes over Sting. Mm-hmm. Sting wouldn't have it. Sting would not do the job for this guy. It was insane. I'm like, dude, it, you have to get him over. And, and Sting just wouldn't do it. And Funk was like, well, I'll let him go over. I mean, that that is the ultimate unselfish act. And, you know, Terry would joke. He'd be like, you know, I'm the number one contender for the NWA title, but I have not won a non-television squash my entire run here. And that's probably true. I wish he would have stayed longer. I wish he would have stayed longer, too. I mean, he had a fallout with management at the end. And, you know, of course, considering who was running the place. I mean, one one last thing on Terry Funk. I went to a show at the Worcester Auditorium, I want to say October 1989, and uh, Hurricane Hugo had hit the Carolinas, and a lot of the wrestlers had been impacted by that, obviously. They, they lived in the area, and no one was into their match on this night. It was a really bad card, except for Ric Flair and Terry Funk, who went out there and had a four-star match in front of about 800 people when no one else was even trying. That's awesome. Good to hear. (laughs) My number one was The Rock. And I switched in and out of that a couple of times. Terry Funk was my number one at one point. Roman Reigns was my number one at one point. But The Rock, I mean, he was the biggest star in wrestling when wrestling was at just a phenomenal height of popularity that I didn't think was possible. And I remember, you know, just being at the mall or at, a, at an amusement park and you couldn't look in one direction without seeing someone wearing a wrestling shirt. The ratings for Raw were, were incredible and The Rock was the top guy. His interviews were, to me at least, were drop what you're doing and watch this guy. And then when the show is over, you rewind the tape and you watch it again because he was that good. The argument against The Rock, obviously is that his career was kind of short, yet at the same time, he's headlined five WrestleManias, and rumor has it next year it's going to be six. So, I mean, I know he had a short career, but his peak was so incredibly high, ultimately I went with The Rock. I can't argue. I mean, as you know from the messages I was sending you this week, I I didn't know how to handle The Rock in this list, but you can't argue having him at number one whatsoever. He's and and he's pro wrestling's greatest export into the civilized world. <laughs> All right. Well I'll tell you what, we're gonna wrap this up. Jeff, you have been a fantastic guest. We're gonna have you back. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I'm gonna wrap this up by giving everyone my eleven through twenty, okay? okay. Charlotte Flair is eleven. Eddie Guerrero is twelve. Greg Valentine is thirteen. Kerry Von Eric fourteen. Road Dog Jesse James is 15, and if you're if you're rolling your eyes on that, hey, DX and the tag, what was the name of his tag team? The, the New Age Outlaws. They were huge at one point. They were. I have Tully Blanchard, 16, Barry Windham, 17, Jay and Jimmy Uso tied at number 18. They are one of the greatest tag teams of all time. Kurt Henning at 19 and Owen Hart at 20. You know what this is a great list when you can't get Kevin Von Erich or Jake Roberts in the top 20. You're right. I had I just made a little list of the guys that I you know, couldn't get into my top 11. I had Kurt Hennig, Jake Roberts, any of the additional Von Erichs, Owen Hart, and then uh, my dark horse candidate was Brad Armstrong, just because he was always such a great wrestler, even though he didn't bring a whole lot else to the table. 
No, he really didn't. It, it, it's it's sad because Brad was such a great guy, and he he died early. And he was a when he went up against Ric Flair in 1987. I heard the matches were great, but I just you know you knew he wasn't going to win the title. No, you, you you sure did. Yeah, there was no chance of it happening. But I I just he's always been a sentimental favorite of mine. I can totally see that. Jeff Sims has been a great guest. I want to thank him once again. I want to thank our producer Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does making Stick to Wrestling sound good. This has been a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Network. Thank you, John. This concludes our podcast day.